but green building is always a component. What percentage of your portfolio is a green building? How much energy, how much water is your portfolio consuming? So it's always been a consideration. Now it's, you know, we're seeing it move into the actual practices of construction to create that building rather than just the entity itself. So it's getting beyond just the four walls of a completed project and starting to say, well, what did it take to actually get here? ESG has exploded into compliance and business consciousness in 2021. Join Tom Fox, the voice of compliance on the ESG report and learn about sustainability risks, opportunities, and issues that business leaders and compliance professionals need to know about regarding ESG. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I have with me Tommy Lindstrom. Tommy has a really interesting professional background, and it turns out that he is actually a leader in the ESG space in a way that we haven't visited about before. So, Tommy, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks. I appreciate the opportunity. Tommy, could you tell us your academic background and your professional background? Sure. So I'm originally from Wisconsin. I got my undergrad in business with a minor of environmental studies from the University of Wisconsin in Platteville, which is in the southwest portion of the state. And then really, as I was finishing up my my collegiate career, decided that sustainability was really where my true passion lied. So I got a minor in it, but at that time, you can't do anything with a minor. So I ended up working in marketing for a little while and then uh, decided to go back to school to focus on environmental sciences. And so went to the College of Charleston in Charleston, South Carolina to get my Master of Environmental Studies and then rolled into that into the professional world. So from there, started my career in real estate development. So I went from Charleston to move down just down the coast to Savannah, Georgia, where I was the director of sustainability for a regional developer called Malaver Inc. This was in 2004, the early days of green building when people thought we were doing compliance because we did something bad instead of actually having a, uh, a conviction and a commitment to building for the greater good. And so worked in uh, commercial real estate development from the owner's perspective, which really gave me a unique view on doing development right, doing it sustainably, but still making the dollars and cents work and using it to attract different tenants and higher rents. And we did everything from the first LEED certified shopping center to some of the first green affordable housing in the state. So really ran the spectrum of all sorts of uh, green developments before moving into consulting, ran a consulting group called Trident Sustainability Group for a while and worked with a couple hundred projects going through sustainable design and construction requirements before moving to my current position, which is the founder and CEO of Green Badger, where we are a software platform built to automate green construction compliance. So pretty much everything I was doing as a consultant packaged up as software to make it much more affordable, achievable, and attainable for all of your sustainability goals. Tommy, I've had the chance to visit with just a very small handful of people who have been in this space for as long as you. They've typically been started out perhaps as environmental lawyers and then gravitated towards sustainability and now ESG, but you're the first I've met in the construction industry. So I'd like to start off by asking, how have you seen all of this field evolve and maybe what struck your passion so much with a minor in environmental science and then getting a master's degree to make this your chosen profession? Sure. Well, I'll start with the second question, which is how did I get here in my personal journey? 
you know, I was coming back home from college for spring breaks and over summer. And every time I came back, we grew up in a suburban area outside of Racine, Wisconsin. But while we were in a, a subdivision, we were surrounded by farm fields and forests, which is, as a kid, we'd just go run out, just have to be home by dusk. By the time it got dark was the parents' rule. And we were playing in the woods and in the fields. And that's where we spent all, a lot of our free time. And every time I came back home, I'd noticed there was less and less of it. And there was just a new development, a new neighborhood coming up without seemingly a lot of thought. And so it was really just my firsthand witnessing of the natural areas that I grew up playing in, which really stoked that fire of balancing sustainability. And so that's what led me into the field. Originally, I thought I might be more on the nonprofit side. I'm really glad I got in on the development side. It has changed substantially. And as I mentioned, when I first got into it, lead and sustainability didn't even exist back then. It was not the buzzword it is today. But people thought we were doing it out of compliance because we did something wrong. There was not a sense of, hey, you should be doing this or everybody should be doing this. And it used to be just a big focus on energy. If you thought it was green, it had to be energy efficient. And it was really just a focus on one aspect. And how it's evolved has really been now its site considerations, its healthy materials, its the occupants of the building, the well-being of the humans themselves. And so it's went from one dimensional to multifaceted. And I'll certainly give credit where credit's due. I mean, things like the U.S. Green Building Council and the LEED rating system has helped define and expand what a more comprehensive framework should look like. And now we're starting to see the market condition adapts to that and moves it forward. And so it's really evolved just into, as with anything, the more we know about something, the more robust it can become. And it just expands that conversation of what sustainability, specifically in the built environment, means. So how does green construction fit into an overall ESG conversation, Tommy? So ESG, it's becoming much more popular, obviously, today. It's, you know, at least from our perspective, we've seen it a lot at the organizational level, at the corporate level, or if you're a real estate investor, sort of at a portfolio level. And certainly, when you look at the general frameworks that are out there for ESG, which there's, you know, there's not a definitive one, there, there's multiple frameworks out there. But green building is always a component. What percentage of your portfolio is a green building? How much energy, how much water is your portfolio consuming? So it's always been a consideration. Now it's, you know, we're seeing it move into the actual practices of construction to create that building rather than just the entity itself. So it's getting beyond just the four walls of a completed project and starting to say, well, what did it take to actually get here? So could that actually really expand out from just a project or a building to perhaps a community or a gated subdivision or some other discrete unit as well? I think it could. If you're a developer, for example, and you're doing neighborhoods or you're doing multifamily developments, it starts to look at the collective impact that those have. And that's not just on the environmental, but also on the, the social and the governance side as well. But certainly to me, ESG is, is a big umbrella and there's potentially hundreds of data points. You get into all sorts of just policy driven things and resiliency and do you have a policy on mitigation? And it's just so broad. And certainly depending on where you are, your built environment is whether you just have a single office or whether your product is built environment and turning over apartments or turning over houses, it's got a big impact on E side of things of ESG as well as the other components as well. What led you to found Green Badger? 
Green Badger was founded really as my own, the own challenges I was facing in managing green construction. As a consultant, I was working with a dozen projects all over the East Coast, each one in a different phase of construction. And for each one that we had spreadsheets tracking waste, we had other spreadsheets tracking materials. We would go back and forth with our contracting partners to try and find out what were they using? How are they using it? How much of it did they use? And you, you honestly have to track and verify something from the day you put a shovel in the ground until you hand the keys over to the owner. And then you're, you're taking this compilation of months or in many times years of data and you've got to go schlep it off and try and earn your green building certification. And it was just way too many times beating my head against the wall and staring with teary eyes at way too many tabs of spreadsheets to just say, look, there's got to be a better way that we can try and automate some of this process. So we're not spending hundreds of hours chasing paperwork. You know, we should be using that time to make our buildings actually greener or get them done on time and on budget. Green Badger came as a solution to my own problem as a consultant. And it once we started envisioning what it could be, I was like, all right, well, I could use this in my own practice and work on a couple dozen projects, or we could take this and turn that into the sole function and provide this as a software service where we can impact thousands and thousands of projects, which will make their lives easier, will make our lives easier, and which in the end, we hope will translate into more green buildings. I interview a lot of innovators and a lot of entrepreneurs, and one type of innovation seems to be people who look at the same thing I look at and either see a problem or a market opportunity, perhaps. Just a handful, however, are like you that identify the problem themselves and decide, well, I'm going to find a solution to the problem I'm having. So I always find that really fascinating. What is a green certification you mentioned? So for buildings, the primary or the gold standard is called LEED certification, which stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. And that is a third-party certification that is administered by the United States Green Building Council. So it is a third-party verified standard that you can use to verify the sustainability attributes of a building. It's got widespread adoption. So I call it the gold standard. There's plenty of other green building certifications out there, but LEED is in use in over 140 countries. It's required on almost anything that's publicly funded. So anything from the federal level, you've got two-thirds of states require it. You've got thousands of municipalities and institutions of higher education require it. And then 95% now of Fortune 100 companies require it on all their facilities moving forward. So you've got a widespread public and private adoption of this standard. And really, it just gives you third-party verification that you've designed the building with sustainability in mind, you've built it with sustainability in mind, both the materials and the practices you use, so that if you're an owner, when you get this building turned over to you, it's not just, yeah, we said we did some green stuff, but you've got an actual third party that's validating, yes, these sustainability goals you had in mind did get met. Tommy, who are the customers of Green Badger? Are they developers like you formerly were? Are they consultants, uh, governmental units, a variety of all of those, or something different? It's a mix. Our primary user is actually the general contractor or the builder. So we're focused really on the construction-related activities that they are ingrained with on a day-to-day -day basis to track, verify, and benchmark their activities, whether it's going for a green building certification or whether it's their own ESG metrics. We have seen uh, broader use now into the architectural and consulting community. And certainly on the ESG side of things, we're seeing more interest from the owners and the developers. 
And that's because if you're doing ESG accounting and you're saying, you know, what is my carbon footprint? It's not just the building once you take ownership of it. It's actually, even if somebody else is generating the emissions during construction, i.e. in this case, the contractor and the subcontractor, me as the owner, I actually own those emissions, so to speak, because they wouldn't have occurred if I hadn't said, hey, let's build this building. So even though somebody else is generating those emissions, technically as part of my accounting, I would want to have those as part of my scope. So we're seeing a broader adoption on the ownership side, specifically because there's so many moving pieces in construction and be able to standardize that workflow is a good benefit to everybody. So what are some of the common ESG metrics in the construction phase? Some are going to sound common, some not so much. On the E side of things, which I think is where a lot of emphasis gets put, we've got your energy consumption. So that is fuel used on site for equipment. That is electricity used for temporary power and lighting. That could be gas. If you're, you know, if I was up, up in Wisconsin in the winter, you'd probably be heating that site. So it's all of your sort of direct and indirect emissions from an energy side of things. There's other scope three carbon emissions, if you will, that teams do account for, like commuting to the job site. So where is your project team coming from every day? Is there any travel? Does the project team need to fly in for meetings? And even down into the product transport. So how is the drywall getting to site? Where's the concrete coming from and how, what are the emissions associated with that? And so you've got an energy and a carbon component. Construction waste is a pretty standard one. A lot of teams have their own internal metrics for how much construction waste we're aiming to divert. And then water consumption is the last one we typically see. So water can be Anything from batch concrete plants on site to pipe testing to waterproofing testing really just depends on the project scope. Those are the e-metrics we see. On the S side of things, for social, a lot of focus on MWBE or minority and women-owned business participation and being able to benchmark the track record for the project team and their subcontractors for that, as well as local participation, which is you know it's specific to that project. But how do we define local and how are we working to incorporate local subcontractors to ensure our dollars are staying in our own communities. And then there's a big focus on wellness. Wellness could really fall into the ES or the G in my book, but really a lot of times in the construction world, you have a focus in your home office of having healthy snacks and comfortable work environment, but half your team is out in the job site and they're out in the field and not forgetting about them and ensuring that our construction sites are good and positive for the workers and safe, and all of those other good things. So those we see on the S side. The governance side, safety falls into governance, but a a lot, at least from my perspective, governance is more organizational. You know, you don't have too many specific regulatory governance issues that change job site to job site. Those tend to be more at at a corporate level. So bigger focus for us on the E and the S, a little bit on the G side. But again, those would be the metrics we're seeing that are actually out in the field. So I am for my sins, a recovering trial lawyer. And in part of my career, I defended companies and insurance companies in uh, business accidents and injuries, a large number coming out of the construction industry. So I'm always intrigued by the safety aspect. And what I saw in the 80s and 90s was a move to emphasize safety because of the cost. Basically, the insurance costs went up so dramatically. And now I see the I see the safety in the directly in the S, but you see it in the governance as well. I was wondering how you see safety, if I could maybe dive into that a little bit more in the G in in addition to or or different from the S. Well, I think it falls into the S for sure because we are talking about wellness and you know the physical well-being of your team. I'll be the first to say I'm not a general contractor and the the safety 
side, you have safety directors at the youth organizations because they're experts in it. But I will say, at least from my experience, some of that seems to be policy driven. There's a policy you have to have hard hats on. There's policy you have to have safety glasses on. So those become governance at how they're perhaps administered, even if the end result translates into the well-being and the safety of the individual. So again, that's one of the ones I think would overlap between both of those. But being that some of those are policy driven, we, we lump those into more of a governance aspect of how they're administered. After you turn the keys over to the owner, do you work with tenants or owners of buildings to help them continue to have uh, their certification, or is your focus really on the construction side? It's really on the construction, but on the ESG, we are moving into the operational side because we want to provide those owners who are working with a seamless transition so that they can say, all right, for two years, we built this building and here's what the impacts were. Now we're occupying this building or tenants are occupying this building. We want to continue to track and monitor what those impacts are. And it can give them a more holistic lifestyle assessment of their individual assets. Again, all of those roll up into a greater ESG reporting, but we like to look, obviously we're focused specifically just on the built environment side of things. So that's definitely, a, there's a lot more existing assets out there than there are ones under construction. So it's a, it's a, it's a large potential marketplace. So what are two or three of the top challenges that construction teams face in ESG benchmarking? The number one is the conversation we have every day, which is what is ESG in construction, right? It's it's still, you know, there's with LEED, which I referenced earlier, there's a set standard that's administered. There is no standard right now. Teams are just figuring out what ESG means to them or what their owners and their clients are requiring they'd provide. And so there's still just the learning curve associated with what does this all mean and how does this impact me? So that's step one is really understanding why does this affect me and why is this important? Challenge two then is actually beginning to get that information, right? There's a lot of moving pieces that are sometimes outside of a project team's control. Subcontractors coming in from all over the place, you might not be able to control the types of equipment they're using. You've got to get them to start sharing their data and their information on fuel usage and commute. And it's it's questions people haven't necessarily been asked. So sometimes there's always just a reluctance to to share that because you think it's being used as a stick rather than we're just trying to get to an end goal. This isn't punitive. We just need to get that information. But being able to collect that information, again, over, over years potentially of construction is an inherent challenge. And then being able to just track and validate that data, that's, that's another challenge, right? Getting into away from just lumping everything into giant spreadsheets and being able to translate. Because right now in the construction world, a lot of this comes from, so our client is the general contractor, their client is the owner. And as I mentioned, right now, the owners are the ones who are saying your carbon is really ours and we need to account for it. And so being able to accurately capture that information and benchmark it so that you can report it back to their clients, you know, that's sort of the third challenge. So you've got to understand why do we need to do this? What do we need to even do? How are we going to get this information? And how are we going to ensure that we're providing valid data upstream to our owners in a way that meets all of their goals? And the other challenge is that every project is different. So if you're doing a new construction project that has a temporary power meter on site and you're getting a monthly utility bill, hey, collecting electricity is easy. It's a breeze. You're paying a check every month so you know exactly how much energy you're using. If you are in the middle of Manhattan on the 34th floor doing a office fit out for a client and you're on 
you know, a shared meter that everybody else on that floor is using. And there's no way you can figure out what your own electricity bill is because it's just not submetered to that level. Well, all of a sudden, something that seems so easy to get, which is electricity information, may not be that easy to get. So there's still some inherent challenges just based on construction is vastly diverse in terms of scope. So to be able to actually look apples to apples and compare apples to apples rather than apples to oranges, that's yet another consideration. Once you have the data, once you're benchmarking it, once you're tracking it, ensuring that as you begin to take that next step, which is, well, how do we begin to reduce it and how do we know it's good or not? Making sure that you're looking at it in a level playing field is a challenge that everybody's going to be going through here shortly. A little bit earlier, you mentioned scope three, and I wanted to maybe expand on that and ask, could you explain or detail how scope one, scope one, scope two, and scope three apply to the construction industry? Sure. So those terms are all carbon accounting terms and really looks at where are the source of emissions. So scope one is what's called direct emissions. So if you have equipment on site and it's burning gasoline, that gasoline is combusted on your job site. Those emissions come out the tailpipe of that earth mover or whatever it is. That is a direct emission you're responsible for because it happened on your job site. Scope two is pretty much electricity. So you're using your electricity on the site. You're paying for it. Those electrons are yours. The actual em emissions are occurring 100 miles away at the actual power plant. So even though those emissions are happening 100 miles away, they are still considered your emissions because you flip the light switch or you're the one who's actually consuming that electricity. Scope three is really any of the mobile sources. And so scope one and scope two tend to be pretty, nothing's easy, but straightforward because you tend to get a bill for them, right? Somebody is paying for those types of fuels, whether it's on-site or not. Mobile sources is tough. That can be, again, employee commute. And is that just the general contractor team or is that the hundred of subcontractors that are coming? We have no control over where they're coming from, how they're getting there, what type of vehicles they control. Same with product transport, right? I mean, you might be able to control where you're sourcing your concrete from or your steel from, but hey, that stuff's got to get to site. And if you need 500 trucks of concrete to come to pour your foundations, there's not too many ways to optimize that. So those are just you know, emissions that are associated with your project. And then the last one's just really any miscellaneous travel that comes into it. So people coming to site, travel, any other mobile sources that are associated with it. So that one tends to be the trickiest one that we see because there can be just a vast amount of data out there without a bill to pay behind it. So collecting it, aggregating it, standardizing it, that's one of the hurdles we're trying to help teams figure out a solution to. Tommy, you mentioned that many of these initiatives are driven by owners in hiring uh, construction companies to build projects or government funding. In other industries, I've seen financing, whether it's banks, private equity, or other institutions really lead the discussion or the demand for an ESG solution, and even to insurers now looking at that from an insurance perspective to help with a ratings application. Do you see those in the construction industry as well? I think it's coming. Again, I think construction is sort of trickle down and the investment. And yeah, when you see BlackRock saying, hey, everything needs to have ESG or it's not getting investment, right? Those are hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars at stake. And those the insurers and the investors, they're the ones who are talking to the developers. And so now the developers need to respond to them. And what do they do? They need to push it down to the contractors. So I think we see sort of the ripple effect. When you see it at those 
bigger institutional levers, those become the drivers to ripple it through everywhere else on that supply chain. Yes, we are seeing some of the contracting world is seeing the writing on the wall and they're saying, hey, I don't care if the owners are asking it for it or not. It's important to us. We want to have a program in place. We have our own ESG goals or we want to be prepared when it's coming. But I think a lot are being driven by the owners who themselves are driven by either regulation or the financial institutions. You see the SEC is coming out and they're saying, hey, if you're a publicly traded company, you need to disclose your carbon. Well, that includes carbon that's generated from your operations and from construction activities. So that just makes it more prevalent. You have owners who have their own public commitments who said, we're going to be carbon neutral by 2030 or 2040. And then you have the investment world and the financing world that's saying, these are the type of things we are going to put money behind. So you get, you're seeing it from all over, but it all just starts to trickle downhill and that's where it starts to hit, hit the construction world. If I could ask you to put on your prognostication hat, perhaps, and look down the road to 2025 or perhaps even to 2030, do you see this as an increased opportunity or increased requirements in new construction, whether residential or commercial? A hundred percent. Right now, how we see it, the faucet's on and it's just a trickle. There's a slow dripping faucet. And those levers we just talked about, whether it's financial, owner-driven regulation, they're slowly lifting that lever where that drop is going to turn into a trickle and then it's going to turn into a full blast. You'd brought up safety earlier in what you saw in the 80s and 90s. Nobody asked about safety anymore. Now it's ingrained. It is part of the culture. It's part of every job site. It's not, they have weekly safety meetings, right? In hindsight, it is not like the last thing you do anymore. My sense, if I'm wearing that forward-looking hat, is that this is what's going to happen with ESG, where it's just going to be baked in as a standard operating procedure, just like you need to report on how many submittals are overdue and how the schedule is. It's going to be where are we on our ESG reporting and benchmarking. By 2025, I think we're going to see a rapid uptake. And by you know 2030, I think it's going to be how we're talking about safety, where it's just ingrained in. And it's going to be a, a standard that everybody's going to be looking at and tracking on all their projects. Tommy, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself, on Green Badger, or really any of the topics we've touched on today, what would be the best place for them to find them? They can find everything on us at getgreenbadger.com. All the social handles are at Get Green Badger as well. And so certainly we put out a ton of resources for free. So if anybody's interested in reading about ESG in construction or green construction or trends. We've got a ton of that information at getgreenbadger.com and would certainly welcome to continue the conversation with anybody who's interested. Well, Tommy, I wanted to thank you for this podcast. It's been a great learning experience for me. I think for many of the people who listen to this, it will be uh, as well. I'm going to echo or second uh, what you just said about the website. It has a ton of free resources. If you're in the construction industry or in another industry, you should check out the resources because they'll be invaluable for you in uh, creating and enhancing your ESG program. The only thing I would ask is I hope we can continue this conversation. I look forward to it. And again, I appreciate the opportunity.